Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Daphne Zohar. Daphne is the founder and CEO of Boston-based PureTech Health. PureTech has been around since 2005, seeking to capitalize on some of the big trends in biotech. It started out testing concepts from academic labs that could be the basis for new companies, what's now commonly called the venture creation model. This work led it down the road to starting an eclectic batch of companies focused on wide open fields like microbiome therapeutics, uh, Vedanta Biosciences is one company, digital therapeutics, Achille Interactive is another example of that thesis, and obesity treatment, Gelesis. These companies and others now operate with a degree of independence, with PureTech as a top shareholder. More recently, PureTech itself has transitioned into what could be considered a more traditional biotech R&D company. It has a thesis now focused on what it calls the brain-immune-gut axis, or big axis, specifically focused on treatments that intervene in the lymphatic system. It's now seeking to take therapies further along in clinical development on its own. Daphne has been there through it all as the driving force. One of her earliest supporters at the beginning of PureTech was Bob Langer, the famous bioengineering professor at MIT and prolific entrepreneur. He gave her an early vote of confidence as a co-founder of PureTech, and he's still on the board all these years later. When I asked Bob about his first impression of Daphne 15 years ago when she was just getting started, he wrote, I thought she was very smart, very determined, wanted to do important health-related things, had definite leadership ability, and really wanted to make things happen. And she has, end quote. In this conversation, Daphne discusses her journey and her longstanding efforts to apply science for the betterment of human health. Please join me and Daphne Zohar on The Long Run. Daphne Zohar, welcome to The Long Run. Thanks, Luke. So, Daphne, um, you started PureTech how many years ago? Well, it was about 2005 that we raised our first round of financing. Um, it was really a very interesting journey. We, we built PureTech by bootstrapping, and I'd be happy to tell you more about that. Well, yeah, so tell me from the beginning, like, what drew you to biotech in the first place, and how did you come about the idea to start PureTech? Yeah, so I've always been really interested in entrepreneurship. I started, you know, companies when I was in high school. Um, I studied entrepreneurship and new venture creation at Northeastern, uh, mostly because they had a co-op program that enabled me to start companies while I was in school. Um, so I've always really been interested in entrepreneurship, and I became interested in this sort of interface between academic breakthroughs, academic discovery and how those get advanced. Wait, wait a second, Daphne. Can, can we rewind just a little? What, what kind of companies did you start there at Northeastern? And what, what was your like proverbial first job? <laughs> yeah, um, well, my, one company I started, this is sort of, um, one company I started was a um, olive oil company. Um, another one was a veterinary products company. Um, and, you know, I think, as an entrepreneur, one of the things that was clear to me is when you're an entrepreneur, you're doing everything you can to move forward the idea that you're working on, sort of like the Terminator. You know, you're just going to keep going and you're going to make things work. Uh, and one of the things that struck me early in my career was that entrepreneurs don't often sort of take the time to say, what could I, what would I do if I could do anything? Um, and so that was really the the awakening for me was to look at where, you know, if I could put my energy and my efforts anywhere, uh, where could I make the most difference, you know, potentially in the world? And yeah, olive oil and veterinary products. I mean, these are, uh, you know, they're, they're fine businesses, but they're kind of incremental. And, you know, if you do well at executing, you know, you make a little more each year, but you're not changing the world or like, so what, what, um, what drew you to biotech? Yeah, so the idea that you could really uh, make an impact, that you could do something to relieve the suffering of other people, um, that you could 
you know, make a difference in people's lives. I think that was the thing that drew me. And I got really interested in how, you know, how these innovations are translated. So really took a look at uh, that innovation ecosystem, which is, you know, mostly at the time it was really, you know, entrepreneurs, seed stage investors, venture capital funds. Um, and the venture creation thing was, was not really, um, was, wasn't really sort of as prominent as it is today. Uh, you know, obviously there's some firms that have always done venture creation, um, like Arch, for example. But uh, looking at that translational space, what became clear was that a lot of biotech companies get started because there's an individual, whether it's a scientist or an entrepreneur or some combination, that gets excited about a specific scientific discovery, a specific modality, and moves that forward. And what ends up happening is the most compelling of those um, people uh, get funding and then there's attrition along the way, right? So uh, there's this whole ecosystem that's set up to move forward these individual um, entrepreneur scientists or individual innovators, and then the attrition happens later. Daphne, I'm curious, how did you learn all this stuff as a young person? Did you just like pick up the phone or, or you know, like uh, call like famous scientists and say, hey, can you... Can I come over and, and talk? Or how did you do it? Yeah, I really started to meet scientists. I actually, one of the first people I met was Bob Langer. Uh, and I went to him and, you know, to his credit, uh, he took the time uh, to meet with me. And, and the idea really behind PureTech was that instead of sort of advancing one concept, what we would do is we would look at a specific disease, break down the disease with experts. And then um, through that process, look at sort of a landscape of technologies that were being advanced in academia. That was sort of the initial concept. Uh, and Bob, you know, I sort of thought of Bob as being an institutional version of an entrepreneur. Like he had done this broadly, um, you know, developing his own innovations, other scientists coming to him. Uh, and he helped me by you know, making some introductions, agreeing to actually co-found Tech with me, which was pretty brave of him, actually, to look back at it. Yeah, I mean, he was uh, a well-established figure then, uh, probably uh, didn't hurt <laughs> with raising money and getting introductions to entrepreneurs. Um, now, 2005, you said. So describe the the investing landscape and the science landscape then. I mean, it wasn't booming like it is today, uh, but I guess we had come out of the um, the you know, the post-genomics bubble had burst, you know, early 2000s. What, what did you see there in terms of opportunities? Yeah, so, you know, I think what, what was striking to me is that um, there, you know, there was sort of these, and I think that's still the case today, uh, people who had already established themselves um, and had sort of uh, developed a track record and, and those uh, individuals were getting funding and, you know, even if their idea wasn't necessarily you know, sort of the best idea, um, because the idea was that you could sort of bet on the jockey, not the horse, that was sort of the phrase that was used a lot. Uh, but the idea really that struck me was that, you know, who is going to identify the best horses? You know, if everybody's betting on the jockeys and the jockeys aren't really looking very broadly. So, um, you know, the idea really was to see if we could flip it around and, and not start with a biased perspective. And I think as an entrepreneur, you know, you tend to view the world through the lens of whatever it is that you're doing. When you hear about competitive approaches, you, you know, you convince yourself what's uh, more, you know, what's better about your own approach compared to the others. And so I think that um, the idea of unbiased, critical thinking, looking at a broad landscape of ideas, working with leading experts um, as an entrepreneur, as sort of an institutional version of an entrepreneur, um, I thought that would have a place in the existing ecosystem. Now, I have to say, I had no money. I had you know, no money. There was no people. I came from another, you know, I didn't come from sort of a traditional biotech background. And the early days were very hard. We started with a $100,000 investment. We built it up um, very slowly over time. had to prove ourselves um, before we were able to raise capital and then also generate our own cash, which is something that we're doing Interesting. So were you thinking that you would start with a single um, program and, and try to develop it? Or, or was the idea to become like a, a more diversified venture firm, like PureTech Ventures, it was then called? 
to, to be more diversified from the start? So the way that we developed the therapeutic candidates was we would put them into these founded entities, these subsidiaries, and advance them. But these were all ideas. So there's now been 24 therapeutic candidates that have come out of our sort of engine. And um, two of those have now gone all the way from inception of PureTech through FDA approval. But if you go back and look at the, um, you know, with the early days, um, we were creating these, but we didn't have the funding to advance them ourselves. So we partnered with venture firms in order to advance those. So they were sort of like ventures, but we never had a venture fund. We've always been structured as an operating fund. And so there was reasons for that. It's an operating company, uh, but then it created a bunch of these subsidiaries, companies that we now know by names like Vedanta and Microbiome, Achille Interactive for Digital Therapeutics, uh, Gelesis as a obesity treatment. Um, there's a uh, listeners might detect there's there's a, a wide range of of scientific disciplines and, and interests uh, at work, kind of under the pure tech umbrella. Is, what, what do you th- say is the, is the common thread? Like what binds all these things together? Yeah, there's a few things. One is this disease focus. So when we were starting, for example, Corona, um, the approach was to look at schizophrenia and sort of break it down. And um, in that process, we, um, you know, we had schizophrenia experts, we had our team. And one of the things that everyone was really excited about was xenomalin, which was initially developed at Eli Lilly, uh, a muscarinic agonist, um, and that had really remarkable efficacy in, in one small study and also uh, retrospectively in a larger study. And it was never developed because it had these GI tolerability issues that sort of um, held it back. And uh, two members of our team came up with this idea of coupling xenomalin, which is a muscarinic agonist, with um, trospium chloride, which is a muscarinic antagonist that doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. And um, then we went ahead and did a study to prove that that would reduce the tolerability issues around it. So there's uh, this concept of starting with a disease, identifying, looking at what's been tried, looking at work that's uh, taking place in academia and large pharma, and then figuring out if we can bring something to the table, whether it be through our own inventions, in, in the case of Karuna, or through um, IP from academic institutions. So um, that's one thread, this concept of starting with a disease, working with experts. Another thread is this brain immune gut access, which is increasingly well, let, let's, let's come to that a little bit later, Daphne. The Karuna Therapeutic story, uh, and listeners of this show will remember that Steve Paul was a previous guest um, on this show. We talked about that drug in particular for schizophrenia. But uh, and, and that turned into like a really successful uh, outcome for, for PureTech. You got a lot of early shares and, and I think cashed those out not too long ago and were able to plow that back into further R&D. But um, how did you, so it, does that fit the model that you were describing earlier where you start with, like you, you meet with the entrepreneur, whether it's Steve or someone else, um, and you know you kind of get in on the ground floor, early science, this is quite risky, uh, and, and you convince some venture capitalists to come around the table, whether it's Arch, Third Rock, or some others that, that might have been involved. Is that how that one went? Yeah, I mean, I think that the main difference is that we're the entrepreneur, we're the innovator. You know, so we're working with leading experts, usually scientists, clinicians, um, and academic researchers that are experts in the field. Usually there's like three or four people that anybody would put on the list of top people that they'd want in the room. And the way that we have traditionally started these new and developed these new therapeutic candidates is by working with these experts and breaking down the disease saying, okay, here's, you know, all the ideas that we could pursue, what's happening in academia. Also often identifying the um, new data uh, before it's published in major journals. So we've now had uh, 25 papers published in major journals after we've secured the key IP, either through our own, you know, again, sometimes we're the, um, the inventor, sometimes we're bringing another IP. Okay, so to do this, you 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 have to you have to really keep your ear to the ground. You have to build good relationships because you know in any field there's like three or four people who, who as you say, are like the leaders in it. And I mean, don't all the venture capitalists want to work with them? <laughs> why, why why do they want to work with you first? Yeah. And I guess, you know, one of the things um, I have, I, I, I like to say, like some of my best friends are venture capitalists and there's nothing wrong with venture capitalists. I love, I, I really 
you know, have a huge amount of respect, uh, especially for people like Bob and, and others in the industry. Uh, but we're not a venture capitalist. We are a drug developer. And I think that because of the structure of the uh, founded entities, there's you know, people think we're a venture capitalists. They think we invested in Karuna. They don't realize we created that. So that was, we owned initially 100% of that. Um, we were the inventor. And it's true, we did cash out about $465 million worth of our shares, but we're still, um, eight, you know, I think 8.9% shareholder there. And we have the right to receive royalties as an inventor. Uh, and that's after having cashed out because it wasn't that we invested money in it, we created it. So. And then other people come in and invest later, like in, in the A, B, and C rounds. Yeah. In the case of Karuna, we were, you know, really working on it internally for a while. We got this tolerability proof of concept study. And, you know, Steve Paul, along with some of the other experts, uh, were involved with us um, in some of the first brainstorming sessions. And then as he noticed, um, you know, obviously the progress and heard about the data that we had around the tolerability proof of concept, uh, you know, he said, you know, I'd love to be more involved. And um, right around that time, you know, Steve came in as the CEO and then uh, we brought in Bob Nelson at Arch and that was a very quick Series A, Series B IPO. Now, some people listening to this might think, boy, the, the brainstorm sessions, it's really, it sounds pretty early. It sounds like maybe science projects in a, in a way that could sound both good or bad, depending on your point of view, I suppose. Um, do, um, this, this, uh, but this takes a long, long time to develop products, as you know. You've changed your structure over the years, and you've kind of alluded to this. Talk us through, like, what was your thinking about kind of changing your name and and um, and changing like the structure of your operations to, um, I, I guess, navigate uh, the the gauntlet further, like through development. Yeah. So you know, initially we didn't have the capital to move these programs forward ourselves, and then you know after we proved out our track record and had some successes, we were able to raise more capital on a pure tech parent company level. Um, and we, so we did, you know, we, just like any operating company, we did, you know, series A, series B, series C, so on. And then we did an IPO, um, in, at that point we were able to, and that was in 2015, we were able to raise a significant amount of capital. And then. Now that was that in time, London, right? Yeah. So it's really interesting because, um, in London, there are a group of companies that you know, they have a parent company that sort of, um, a uh, central hub and then operating subsidiaries. And the, in London, the parent company is public. In the US, that wasn't the case until recently. So um, at the time that we did our IPO, there weren't any examples really in the US of this type of structure. Since that time, we've had Bridge Bio, and then there's, um, you know, there's some new kind of others that are, um, they're private, but you know, could potentially be public uh, in the not too distant future. Centessa um, Pharmaceuticals is one that that I wrote about, and others did too recently. So it, it's interesting. So like, this is an opportunity that didn't really exist in the U.S. Where, I mean, um, as an investor, you could you could invest in London in a company called PureTech, and y- you get access to a pretty wide, diverse group of. Um, cutting-edge science-based companies, let's say, along with, you know, maybe a few other programs that are a little further along in development and have a near-term chance to become products. So it's, it's, it's almost like you buy, <laughs> you could buy into the parent company or the holding company and, and get access to, you know, a lot of venture-type investments by extension. Is that kind of the idea? Um, yeah, I mean, I think the idea is really that you're not buying into one binary science project um, that's playing out on the public markets, but rather you're buying into uh, a management team and a pipeline of products, um, which include products that are being advanced by the founded entities and also products that we're developing internally. Now, this movement towards being able to develop our internal fully owned pipeline really came about once we had the resources to do that. So we decided that we were um, not going to give up ownership in the new therapeutic candidates that we were developing. So all of the other ones 
the underlying programs and platforms were initiated at Airtech. If you could sort of imagine that we had the resources early on, you know, and we had developed all of those programs ourselves, um, you know, we would look like a biopharmaceutical company. Um, and the, the ability to do that is, is pretty recent. Now, the other thing we did as we sort of evolved the model is we've become increasingly focused on one area of biology where we believe we have leadership position. Uh, and that sort of came from our work in this brain and immune gut crosstalk. And internally, we're focused on the lymphatic system and related immunology, which is a key component of brain immune gut. Okay, so this is kind of an interesting shift. It sounds like you're saying this occurred maybe five years ago or so when you got more of the resources. What um, what compelled you and your board to uh, focus in on, as you call it, this brain immune gut axis uh, and, and really kind of like try to Make that your focus the, 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 of, your, um, of your pipeline. Yeah, it's really it came from starting with big diseases and then following sort of the science and where the innovation um, was happening. So where are all the, you know, some of the more interesting um, scientific papers coming um, and this brain immune gut prospect. So people have heard, for example, of the microbiome, um, you know, the gut epithelial barrier. We were really... Um, become increasingly intrigued by the role uh, of the gut epithelial barrier in, in, in a range of diseases. Um, and then, you know, the lymphatic system. So the lymphatic system is a key component of brain immune gut crosstalk. Um, the mesenteric lymph nodes in the gut, you know, it, right where immunity happens. So, and, and if you think about the um, the lymphatic system, it's almost like a, a super highway for immune cells. So it's a place where um, immune cells sort of selectively traffic, uh, where they're programmed. And we were, through that sort of interest and focus, um, we've been advancing a, a few different approaches to both administer therapeutics into and through the lymphatic system uh, and also to address lymphatic disorders. Now, obviously, the science um, in some of these cases will lead us beyond lymphatic disorders and we're, you know, we're developing therapeutics not just in lymphatic disorders, but also in immunology, oncology, fibrosis, and inflammation sort of broadly. And, and um, of course, um, the B in brain immune gut um, in, in neurological indications. It's, um, it's an area that uh, has attracted some capital, as you know, like people probably heard of serious therapeutics as uh, uh, Vedanta is one of your portfolio companies. Surely you had a lot of exposure there. Um, but I, it's been hard to come up with drugs, uh, that work on this evolving understanding of the microbiome. It just seems like there's so many things going on, (laughs) so many factors in the biology. It's almost like, where do you intervene? Um, how have your discussions along these lines evolved? Like what's the, what's the way to intervene here for the pharmaceutical industry? Yeah, so I think that, you know, in our case, brain immune gut goes you know, beyond microbiome. The microbiome is, is one component, which we think is very important. And, you know, there's companies like Vedanta who have um, spent a lot of time uh, really understanding the immunology um, that's going on there and um, developing sort of a repeatable uh, approach to developing therapeutics, basically, um, that can target this microbiome immune interaction. So, you know, and that's quite different. That's evolved beyond, you know, where that field started with fecal transplants or, or you know, fecal components. So, you know, I would say for not, uh, I could talk to you probably for an hour about this. And, and, you know, in that case, we really started with leading immunologists and we were interested in this interface between the host immune system and the microbiome. And so it was people like Ruslan Metzitov and, Sasha Rudensky and Dan Lippman, um, who led us to um, the work of Kenya Honda, which had not yet been published. Uh, I think it was in Nature at the time that was, was getting ready to be published. And we were able to uh, bring that IP in and, and help to expand it. And then that became Vedanta, which is now in the clinic with four different programs. So, you know, that was, I think that's a very interesting space. By the way, people have been talking about the microbiome for you know, over 20 years, um, it's been an area of really interesting research, but really only in recent years, the tools and data 
have sort of supported therapeutic development. So I think there's what would be the, the the big tools that um, have changed the game? Is it sequencing? Is it single cell analysis at high throughput? A, a variety of things. The variety thing, all all of those, uh, you know, metabolomics. Um, you know, just the ability to not just look at correlation, but actually to do studies that look at causation, which is what Vedanta has done. So, you know, I think that's probably the most important is, is actually looking at causation and not correlation. But all, you know, these tools have really expanded in terms of their development just in recent years. If you like this show, subscribe to Timmerman Report. Thanks for your support. TimmermanReport.com. And there is another way to support quality, independent biotech journalism. You could sponsor the Long Run Podcast. If you are at a company with your own podcast, this is one excellent way to let potential listeners find out about your show. The Long Run has more than 5,000 listeners every other week. Ask my business rep, Stephanie Barnes, for more information about how you can become a sponsor. Her contact information is on TimmermanReport.com. You know, it's funny. Um, I'll share with the listeners. Um, you'll remember this. You had one of your um, your summits for um, your advisors and board and scientific guests, I guess, in Aruba. <laughs> and I was there um, a couple years ago, I guess. And one of the presentations that I remember was a scientist who presented data on uh, appendectomies and how people, I, I, if, I, if I remember this right, people who get appendectomies end up being less likely to get Parkinson's. And <laughs> I mean, it was, a, it was a strange, curious kind of after the fact finding. And I remember wondering like, well, okay, if you know that if this is true, then I mean, what would you, what would you do uh, to try to reduce people's risk of Parkinson's? I mean, we're not going to go around removing people's appendixes uh, prophylactically, <laughs> um, but it, like, how would you, I mean, do you, do you find yourself like, wrestling with a lot of this leading edge science and really like thinking, uh, gosh, like how in the world would we ever apply such a thing? Yeah. And I think that, that one of the things that you have to be able to do is navigate between really exciting breakthrough science and then what's actionable. What could you run a study, um, and get some results within the you know, near term within a certain amount of money and one of the things that we like to do, another part of the model, you know, you asked what are the things that tie things that we do together, uh, is to run the experiments that could control the project. Um, so in some cases, that's, you know, key preclinical experiment where you're repeating academic work and going beyond that. But in many cases, it's actually a clinical study, um, which is a clinical proof of concept study. And, you know, what I think is unique about our model uh, and others that are pursuing similar models is that we we as a management team have the incentive to move our resources, human and capital, um, based on what's working and to shut down programs that don't work. If you only have one or two programs or only one underlying modality, it's really hard to, um, to take that decision and to say, okay, well, now the whole team is going to dismantle and all of that. We've set it up that way. And I think that that actually is something that is a positive, um, it's a positive and important thing to be able to kill, you know, kill um, programs and not to continue, not to have this sort of bias to continue. Let's run another study. Let's do this, you know, p-hacking and think that there's something here. Let's do another, you know, let's do phase three. We have none of that incentive because we know that our resources can be moved between multiple other programs. So like, uh, so you're in the... You're in the fail fast, fail early, fail cheap uh, kind of camp and move on to the next more promising uh, experiment. Yeah. And, and I want to say, though, it's, it's interesting because there's nuance there. You know, if you're if you if you fail fast and you missed something, if you run, you know, if you miss something, um, then you, you know, you won't find out if something works, even if it works. So I think um, we're what we like to do is design these experiments that you know, would convince us that it doesn't work, you know, and then, and actually perversely, when those go well, they're very convincing that it does work. So um, it's kind of like an opposite. Usually, you know, in a biotech company, people want to move something forward. They don't necessarily want to try to find a way to kill it. And we try to do that early, like you said. 
Now, obviously you depend, you get, you get a lot of input around the table from some, you know, really stellar advisors and um, you know, entrepreneurs that are kind of in your, your orbit now. Um, why, um, why do you, what do you do as a networker, I guess? Like, how do you get to know these people and, and build those, uh, those trusting relationships over the long term? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's probably a really key thing um, that you know any entrepreneur needs to be able to do. Uh, in our case, there's a, such a critical mass that's developed over the years of people that we've worked with, and I think you know what draws them. You know, initially, what drew them was to be in the room with the others, right? You know, um, you have these you know great minds um, in a specific field. And often, actually, they are advisors to all the major pharma companies. They sit on advisory boards together. But the idea of asking them, you know, what would you do if you could do anything? What's the most interesting work that any of your former postdocs are doing? You know, what's something that you wish you had seen developed but didn't get developed? And then actually being part of together, um, coming up with the best, you know, ideas that you could pursue to make a difference for patients. I think that's one thing that draws them the concept of no bias, like we're all working together. Uh, and I think probably just the fact that we've had a track record of taking these new, you know, these breakthroughs uh, and, you know, killing some, of course, but, you know, like I said, 24 therapeutic uh, candidates, 13 are in the clinic, two have gone all the way through FDA. But there were a long, there, there were long years there when it wasn't entirely clear, uh, at least to people on the outside, like myself, like um, that a, a lot of progress had been made. I mean, I think it's been, well, 15 years now since you started, and you do have some things you can point to, like a couple of approved products. I mean, Achille got the first digital therapeutic approved. There's one for sure. Um, but, um, you know, it. it um, how, how did you get through some of those, those leaner times when the capital wasn't so abundant uh, and you couldn't point to, you know, products in phase two or phase three that, that had the scientific community all jazzed up? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, it's it's an interesting question about, you know, what, you know, I think this is an industry where it takes a long time to move new scientific innovations from discovery through approval into clinical development, and that's when you have a lot of resources. So, you know, the I, I remember in the early days, one of the things that was always surprising to me was that people would say, you know, Whereas your, you know, point me to your successes, <laughs> and it's like, okay, we just wait. Uh, and I don't know. I think that most of the people at PureTech tend to be um, sort of, uh, I think, to undersell and prefer to just do the work. Um, and I think the work will speak for itself, and it has. So you know, I try not to get caught up in, you know, near term. I think that that you know, in fact, if you go back to sort of an industry perspective. The idea of incentives, like there's all this, these incentives around short-term things like, oh, did you raise a big round? You know, uh, things like that that are not necessarily indicative of actual progress in getting new treatments to patients. So I think, you know, for me, it's not trying not to get caught up in those nearer-term um, success markers uh, back then. Obviously, we have a lot of them now. Um, and to just focus on doing good work, you know, good science with good people and doing the, the right experiments, um, asking the right questions. You've uh, you took the company public on the NASDAQ. Um, when did that happen? Yeah, so at the end of November, was it the end of November? I think sometime in November, I have to go back and look at the exact date. Uh, we listed on NASDAQ. We did an ADR listing and we um, are now listed both in London, where we're FTSE 250, uh, and then on the NASDAQ. So now you've got you know, more capital than you've ever had before. Um, how does that change the way you do things? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because we are very um, frugal. You know, we, we tend to think about what's, you know, what's needed to do key experiments. Uh, the structural changes in many ways, I think, have enabled us to be more efficient because we have a team of scientists, you know, clinical developers, and we're able to move resources, you know, to different programs. Um, we're not like hiring, 
multiple teams to advance multiple programs. So there's an efficiency there. Uh, but, you know, I think just focusing on what are the key milestones? What are the key catalysts? You know, so for example, we started three clinical studies at the end of last year that are going to read out this year. We're getting ready to start a phase three study uh, in IPF and related progressive fibrosing interstitial lung diseases with our lead program. And, uh, you know, we have three, we have another program that's going into the clinic this year. So it's, it's a lot of it is about clinical development. We also have our research, um, which is run by Joe Bolin, who is our chief scientific officer. And I think you met him. Yeah. Okay. So this makes some sense that you can kind of uh, develop into more of a clinical R&D type of operation where traditionally you've, you've done a whole lot of preclinical work um, where you know it's, it tends to be less expensive. Um, but uh, no, yeah, we've you, you also did... done clinical work as well. So we, what we've done in the past is really um, discovery through human proof of concept. We've done that multiple and then you know, some of those have then progressed through the founded entities you know, further down the path. Now, what about um, long COVID? Like during the pandemic, you know, you like everybody else in biotech has had to adjust to, uh, uh, how you operate, <laughs> number one, but also how you think about opportunities for the future. You saw one here, a subset, let's say, of, of long COVID. Um, you tell the listeners what... Um, what was it that you saw there and, and, and how you could um, how you could potentially help with uh, the lung scarring that um, was observed early on? Yeah, so we have a program, which I'll get back to the um, sort of inception of that program afterwards. But we have a program which is a deuterated form of perfenidone. Um, it's called LYT100. It's an oral antifibrotic anti-inflammatory agent. Uh, which is known to have efficacy in uh, interstitial lung diseases like IPF and unclassifiable interstitial lung disease, for example. Now, perfenidone, for those not familiar, that's marketed by Roche. It's been on the market for a few years. Um, you said that yours is a, a deuterated version, so that's like a swap out. If I remember my chemistry, like y- you take out a hydrogen and put in a deuterium, I think. So it's a, a very sim- It's a similar molecule, but has little different properties. Like maybe it lasts a little longer. It, is that your thinking? Yeah. So it retains the pharmacology um, of perfenidone, um, but it has uh, you know a range of potential benefits, including enhanced exposure, improved tolerability, uh, less frequent dosing, uh, potentially improved uh, efficacy, uh, but we won't know that until we run our studies. Um, So I'll come back to how we got to this program in a moment, but uh, we were were developing it across a range of indications and we're working with pulmonologists, leading pulmonologists. So um, they were seeing this sort of persistent fibrosis after recovery from COVID. And they asked us, you know, do we think that this could potentially have an impact? And um, you know, we quickly um, assembled and um, put together a study to ask to answer that question. So actually what, what happens is a high proportion of mild, moderate, and severe COVID patients, uh, up to 53% actually show signs of lung fibrosis you know, three weeks after symptom onset. And, you know, with now over 100 million people having been infected um, with COVID-19, there's... Um, we believe a potential emerging public health issue. So the idea that this could be endemic, that we um, will be living with COVID-19 in its variants for a while, the chronic um, implications of this disease, you know, we felt were not being sort of um, served. So there's not really many people, any companies developing new therapeutics uh, to target some of these long COVID-related issues. there's still very little emphasis in the media, I think, about this phenomenon of long COVID. And there's debate about, you know, in various degrees and forms, right? But you're saying f- surveys show that 50% of people who've gone through COVID have some lingering form of of lung fibrosis? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm pointing to a specific study. We've got a range of different studies and and there's been a lot of work. So when we first heard about this, we were like, is this real? Um, And that's, you know, part of the the skeptical question that that you ask. Uh, And what's emerged is, you know, there's both 
data from patients, which we're hearing more and more about, um, you know, so patients gathering and, and submitting their own symptoms and things like that, but also much more data around, um, you know, in different clinical settings um, where we're seeing the progression. And um, the NIH has now uh, made this a major focus, and they've put over a billion dollars um, that they're going to be uh, pointing towards uh, understanding and developing new therapeutics for long COVID. But, you know, to, to be completely fair, we this is one of those areas where we're learning a lot about the disease. What's comforting to us is that we know a lot about related diseases, um, for example, SARS Classic and MERS, and, um, and then we also have a lot of information about um, the efficacy profile of perfenidone in uh, IPF and other related disorders. So um, what we, you know, felt like we wanted to, to do something and, and see if we could make a difference. Uh, but I have to say, just like taking a step back, that wasn't the reason why we, we um, developed LYT100. So LYT100, um, we came to that through a disease focus in lymphedema. As I mentioned, we're interested in lymphatic disorders and lymphedema is a, you know, it's a major problem. Uh, there's about a million people in the U.S. with lymphedema. Half of those are breast cancer patients. Uh, and it's a, you know, kind of progressive, dis potentially disfiguring, very painful disorder. And there's nothing, there's no therapeutics right now. The only thing that these patients have is massage therapy, different kinds of compression. And so we were working with with leading lymphedema experts. And that's when we learned that perfenidone uh, had efficacy in this gold standard model for lymphedema. Uh, and we also knew because Barat was involved with Auspex, that Auspex had developed a deuterated form of perfenidone before he sold that company to Teva. So we were able to bring in this deuterated form of perfenidone and the IP from Memorial Sloan Kettering around the, the lymphedema application. And then we ran the key study that that could have killed the program. So very similar to Karuna, the idea was that this um, LYT100 addresses some of the um, GI vulnerability um, issues. And we went ahead and ran this MAD study, the multiple sending dose study, and we showed um, really that we're convincing data that this could potentially be um, you know, very important uh, for patients if it pans out in further studies. So lymphedema, it, it builds off of that um, that bigger concept that you described earlier of the brain immune gut focus, lymphedema being, for lack of a better term, sort of like clogged plumbing. <laughs> your, 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 your lymphatic system is not draining right, and so you get swelling and pain and other functional problems. You got a drug here, deuterated perfenidone, um, and... And then, like as often happens in science, like you notice something else over there off to the side that's that perhaps could be related. I mean, it, well, this is the kind of the nature of, of drug repurposing in a way, right? I mean, you've, you've kind of repurposed that asset. Right. So we're it's it's an anti-inflammatory and anti-fibrotic agent. And in lymphedema, our experts and what we, you know, the work that we've been doing has led us to believe that lymphedema is basically a disease of inflammation, fibrosis, impaired lymphatic flow, and there's a cycle that happens there. So um, there's a, a mechanistic rationale which go, cuts across multiple diseases. Um, and in the case of long COVID, again, we have inflammation early on, then fibrosis, and you know, it makes sense that, um, a, that, that the um, profenidone, which is used for IPF, could potentially have um, an impact there, but we're going to see. So we started. Yeah. What have, what have you learned so far from the, from the clinical data thus far? Yes. Yeah, so we've just, we started, um, a study in, um, lymphedema and we're going to have data, um, in the second half of this year. Uh, and then we also start, started a study in long COVID and both of those are phase two studies, um, you know, randomized placebo controlled studies. Um, and we're going to have the data that Tell us, you know, how, you know, whether these, you know, whether the, this LYT100 um, is efficacious uh, in these conditions. Um, we already have data showing in multiple clinical studies that LYT100 has um, a very favorable tolerability profile. So we're not seeing sort of the nausea 
vomiting, you know, some of the GI effects that you see typically with profenadone in the clinical studies that we've run so far. And then we're also planning registration enabling studies in IPF and PFIOB. So, you know, a range of conditions. And then, you know, we have other programs in our internal pipeline. This is just one. Lymphedema, IPF, um, is there like a a way to segment the population with long COVID? Like, I don't know, people who are coming off ventilators, say, who, you know, had the worst uh, lung issues? Exactly. Yeah, that's that's what we're doing. So we're, we're um, in our clinical studies, um, we are um, focusing on the patients that have had more um, severe sort of um, uh, issues. They have had... Um, oxygen support. Um, so that's what we're, um, we're looking to see. Uh, we think there could be benefit in a broader population, but obviously one of them is study, um, you know, with a very specific population. And we're going to be looking at things like the primary endpoint is a six minute walk test. We have, um, we're looking at PK, you know, biomarkers, imaging, patient reported outcomes. Um, so we should have a good idea of whether this works in long COVID. But I think that what we like about um, going, you know, pursuing long COVID and lymphedema is these are conditions where there's real uh, patient need. There's not many other um, therapeutics being developed for patients. And then what we also like about this particular program is that we have the potential to make a difference in IPF in progressive fibrosing ILDs. Uh, where we have a lot of clinical data around profinidum. So we have sort of these novel indications that are uncorrelated, but then we also have the IPF and PFILDs. So this has the opportunity to be a, a, a nearer-term uh, product opportunity. That would actually be the first one that uh, PureTech, as an operating entity, would take all the way uh, to an FDA approval, knock wood, <laughs> um, and, um, and, and address like what could be, um, who knows? I mean, a really big medical need. We'll, we'll see, um, as, as how big it is actually as, as time goes on and we get a better handle on it. Um, okay. So Daphne, I haven't even mentioned anything about being a woman CEO. <laughs> um, you know, you, you've been doing this for a long time. I know a lot of women look to you um, for, for guidance, advice, um, industry has been kind of wrestling with this issue of how to, um, uh, how to support more women leaders, people of color. What are, uh, what's your view of, of, um, how the industry is doing and what more, uh, can be done to create a more diverse, um, group of industry leaders? Yeah. Um, you know, I think this industry is really good at pattern recognition. And they, they, the industry likes to talk a lot about innovation, but it's innovation within the constructs of things that they're used to um, and patterns that they're used to. And I think one big step is to create a pattern of successful women uh, and other um, diverse groups um, showing that we can be successful and sort of laying the groundwork for future, um, you know, women CEOs. I think that's um, you know, a little bit of a longer term. But, you know, I, I, I do think that there's not many um, women CEOs. And, you know, if I asked you to name three women CEOs, you might come up with a couple that aren't really uh, you know, good role models, right? Um, and that's because, uh, for whatever reason, the progressive function has been around those you know, scandalous or infamous um, approaches. Um, and, you know, the, there's you know, a lot of great uh, leaders that are doing good work quietly behind the scenes. And, um, you know, the results of those work are measurable. You can look at, you can look at track records, look at success. But until the pattern recognition kicks in and people are like, oh, okay, you know, that's, you kind of know what the biotech CEO phenotype is, right? You know, and so, um, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, I and others um, like myself will, you know, really help to create that pattern for future leaders. Wouldn't that be nice to be a positive role model? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I, uh, hearing you say that, Daphne, it reminds me, I was asked about this recently uh, by someone and uh, 
Bonnie Anderson of Verisite came up uh, to, to mind as like one of these really, really strong molecular diagnostic CEOs doing really good work. And, uh, you know, and hardly anybody knows her name <laughs> or outside the industry or and yet everybody knows Elizabeth Holmes. Right. And, and I just thought that says uh, that says more about our society, I think, than it does about anything Bonnie does. Like she's the real deal. She's doing the good things to, to build a company and help patients. And it's, you know, it just says something that we, we don't really look, we don't know her. Yeah. I, I, and I think there's a lot of those examples. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's something that I, I, I feel shift in the industry. Like I think everybody wants um, women CEOs on their board. Everybody wants to bring in uh, women in senior leadership positions. It's actually really hard now to find uh, women who, um, you know, because everybody's the, 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 everybody's so over, you know, committed and, and so sought after. And I think that's a huge shift from years ago. And I would say the same for African-American um, leaders. So I think that's positive. And, and you know, we'll see more progress on that, as, as I said, as we have more patterns of success. Last thing I want to ask, Daphne, uh, what's a good book that you've read lately? That influenced you. Uh huh. Is there a fa- favorite text from Eastern philosophy? Something to do with patience, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we named Karuna Karuna because um, the idea was to, um, you know, to relieve suffering. It's one of the four sublime states. You know, the, the, the desire to help others, and you know, I think that is something that is probably a major driving force for me personally. Is this idea that you know we can be better. Um, to each other, we can be kinder, we can understand each other. I think that's really come across a lot this year with all the divisiveness, uh, all the negativity. There's these little rays of um, humanity and connection um, that you know, just give you hope. I think that's a great place to, uh, to end. Daphne Zohar, thank you so much for spending some time with me today on The Long Run. Yeah, thanks, Luke. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.